Hello, welcome to Serial Casting. This is the podcast for podiatrists produced by Orthopaedic Research UK in association with the Royal College of Podiatrists in London, UK. I'm Gavin Spence. I'm a paediatric orthopaedic surgeon. Most of my practice has been in London. Uh, Currently, I'm at King's College Hospital in Dubai. And for this particular podcast, I'm joined by none other than Professor Kylie Williams from Monash University. Kylie, thank you so much for joining us. We're doing this across time zones. Let's hope the internet hangs out for us. Has that been a problem for you on previous podcasts? No, it hasn't been too bad. We'll we'll keep our fingers crossed. We should be fine. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, we're, we're most grateful to you for joining us. So tell us a little bit about your role. Give us an introduction for where you work and and how you've got into this role and and what you've done in the past. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me on. I always love working with my UK colleagues. My role has been really varied over my career. I've worked in the equivalent of the NHS in Australia in some large public hospitals and community health services running primarily orthopaedic style screening clinics hand in hand with physiotherapists and occupational therapists supported by psychologists and speeches and so really dynamic teams working at screening children escalating them to the private and public hospitals when we needed to but then I decided to do my PhD and I have landed now a role Fortunately, at Monash University, where I'm a researcher and an educator, but I love treating kids so much, I couldn't quite give it up. I still work one day a week in my private practice, and it's a very short one day a week, but it still keeps my hand in the game and understand what's going on with families that I might be missing while I'm sitting in a university office. For sure, and you're most well known for your work on toe walking. So how did that arise? Why did you pick that particular topic? <laughs> yes, I have been fascinated by toe walking since I was a new graduate. I don't know why. I guess the the why just was always there and no matter what I did, I could help some and not help others and some I had to refer to orthopedics and some I had to refer off to neurology and then there's this little group that just we just didn't know why and I was getting quite frustrated and the the universe saw fit to give me my own case example and I had a um, one of my kids was a toe walker and it was very frustrating and I ended up doing a PhD and I guess it's kind of built on that I don't know if I'm proud to say I have a 20 year old that still toe walks but he has great ankle range of motion. I kind of nag it out of him, but it's just a a topic, I guess, dear to my heart because it's also a great teaching tool because toe walking can be a symptom or a diagnosis. It can come from heaps of different things. So I don't know, I just find it really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a common condition. There's so many challenges, there's so much we don't understand. It it means it's a very big deal to parents. I don't know how much a big deal it is to kids. Maybe that's something that we can discuss, but parents seriously worry about it. And, you know, we're still kind of feeling our way in terms of working out the right treatment, I think. I don't think we have all the answers yet. You mentioned about, you know, it could be a diagnosis or it could be a symptom. So I guess what you're getting at there is this idea of a diagnosis of exclusion for, for idiopathic toe walking. So it's hard to say where, where do you start with any case, but, you know, for surgeons... I remember this phrase sticks in my mind from Professor Tony Cattrall, who you always used to say, you know, diagnosis first, diagnosis first, then treatment. Better that way. You, you'd concur with that, I would imagine. Oh, 100 percent. 
And I think one of the biggest challenges, particularly when we think we've ruled everything out and we, uh, like to me, idiopathic toe walking being an exclusionary diagnosis, it's not actually a diagnosis. It just means we can't find the reason. So where we sit on this, words are really important. Parents want to call it something. And I often will talk with parents that it just means we don't know or we don't know now because things might change in the future. And I guess that's one of the things. You might have a little three-year-old who is toe-walking and life is sweet and they, they're just kicking goals. And then you kind of reassure them and say, hey, if things change, and they come back. And as a podiatrist, they'll often come back to us first. They mightn't go back to their GP or a specialist. And then you hear of particularly toileting changes or pain so you've got to quickly switch into a whole different hang on a minute if I'm going to keep thinking it's idiopathic and benign and no problems that's just not going on here I need to prompt those questions each time and just continue to just be a little suspicious yeah you also talked because we were talking before we started about red flags that's another term that's very common amongst us surgeons I mean Mm -hmm. What are the things that you think are important when you're assessing a child with toe walking in terms of red flags? Yeah, absolutely. Toileting changes that are outside of age appropriateness. Um, We don't want to get too excited with some kids who maybe are still not toilet trained at night. That can take a long time for some kids. But where kids have been toilet trained and then stop, um, they're starting to have accidents again and their toe walking or their toe walking may be higher. For me, that's a immediate red flag back to their family healthcare provider, their GP, or we may even divert them to the hospital where we've got a toe walking clinic. So we've got a couple of options there. I guess some others, if we are seeing these kids' tone is changing over time or their sensation changing over time, their reflexes might change over time. And I guess these are really neuro-y sort of things, but they're things that with some kids, you saw them at three or four. They kind of looked okay, but their skills are meant to be a little bit more sophisticated as they get older. So every time you're assessing these kids, thinking you kind of got to go a little bit back to start every time and not make sure you haven't missed anything or things haven't changed. So you mentioned the fact that, you know, there may be things that become apparent when children are older. You know, you may have seen them when they were young and everything seemed okay. One of the things that can be associated with toe walking, of course, is this autistic spectrum disorder, these kind of neurological conditions, and and they might not be apparent in, in very young children. Would you put those, though, in a different group? Would you call those idiopathic or do you think they are a separate thing? This is where I think language is so important that... We know that some children, and I think the statistics are close to four in seven children who have autism, toe walk. So not all children who who may have an autism spectrum disorder toe walk, but many do. And so the challenge is if we're calling it idiopathic toe walking, we're, we're kind of saying there's nothing else. And to me, it almost dampens a little bit the concern. Whereas kids who sit on the spectrum The toe walking might be the least of that family's concerns at the time, but it actually might be the most. It might be the thing that they are concerned 
that the the hand movements, the repetitive hand movements or the toe walking might be the thing that makes that they feel their, their child look different to other kids. And so it, it might be the most concerning. But I think if you lump them all in idiopathic toe walking, it dilutes some of the treatment and some of the conversation because the two, while you might end up not treating toe walking associated with autism, you might need two. And so there's some great work being done by some teams over in the US on even serial casting and the use of AFOs and the kids, even kids who have level three autism, tolerating it really, really well. We've got some work going on at the moment where we're working with kids who are level one. We're trying to understand if we do a touch-based game in, a, in an MRI, do they use different parts of their brain to, to differentiate? So can we train this toe walking differently or change it or understand it more is it the same as kids who have idiopathic toe walking because we know then it's really different from toe walking from a neurological condition so I don't think we know it's different so I don't think we can put it together right now we might find out it isn't but right now I'd I'd feel really comfortable if we didn't call it the same thing as something that um, is an exclusionary diagnosis. Sure. Thanks for that. So our listeners should know uh, Michaelis Kokonakis has joined us now. Uh, we're broadcasting in three different time zones. That brings joy of its own. So Michaelis, you're very welcome. You are broadcasting from London. And yeah, I think you had some internet connection problems, but we got you now. Can you hear us okay? I can, yeah. I'm, I'm, my apologies for this. I'm really excited about... Australia, London, UK and Dubai at the same time. Perfect. <laughs> I'm slightly anxious about it, but so far we seem to be holding up. But Michaelis, I've introduced myself and Kylie has as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work and what your work involves, just so the listeners know who, who has just joined us. Thanks so much, Kevin. So uh, my name is Michaelis Kokinakis. I'm a consultant pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Evelina London Children's Hospital at Guy's and St. Thomas's in London. I deal with children. Uh, most of my practice is based on children with disability, uh, neurological disorders, but I also deal with complex feet uh, deformities and problems. And uh, I've got a passion for education, uh, same way as Gavin, uh, especially when it comes to the interdisciplinary collaboration. So this is where it brings us having this fantastic podcast uh, with the other side of the world with a, an expert on uh, podiatry. So I'm, I'm very excited about the podcast today. So if we think that idiopathic toe walking and toe walking associated with autism may be different conditions, Kylie, does that change your approach in terms of what treatment you recommend for these kids? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, particularly in training and assisting other clinicians with trying to work out a treatment plan, we'll often talk about this bucket approach. You've got a bucket of treatments that you might need to delve into the bucket. And we know that we've got these spectrum of treatments for toe walking, some that have more evidence than others. We know that when the muscle's really, really tight, surgery is an option for some kids. We know that when the muscle is quite tight, but we think we can do something, serial casting is also a really great option. Often though, these are lengthening type things but they don't treat what the parent is concerned about, and that's the toe walking. <laughs> they might stop toe walking, but we know in some of the studies they don't. The kids might toe walk lower, or they might toe walk for a period, period of time, and that might be okay. But if the, And if the parent's prepared for that, 
it often works a treat. We're kind of like, hey, this is what we're treating. Um, but then you've got your treatments like your AFOs, your supramalleolar arthoses, and even just carbon fibre plates in shoes or even just heavy boots for some kids are more than enough. And they kind of flip then into this keeping kids down on their heels. So it's kind of the, the re- hopefully the repetition, build a new motor pattern, build a better heel-toe motor pattern. And then you're kind of shifting down the evidence chain that um, we theoretically know we should stretch this muscle, but passive stretches, like really the classic 12 by 3 for hold for 30 seconds and a child's toe walking for 14 hours a day, I think you're going to set families up to fail and they come back and say it did it work it's like no this is, it, it didn't work for you you get the treatment failed you you didn't fail this treatment sort of thing it, it was never really going to be successful unless you're a family that does yoga for six hours a day so it's kind of then building these activities what can we do can we skateboard or ski or can we do something that you have to get your heels down if you've got the range and is it fun? Will the child willingly do it so you don't have to be nagging them every five or ten minutes to go and do something? But also about how high the stakes are. So the kids with CP or the kids who have Mari tooth, they might need that additional night splinting or they may need periods of serial casting or they may need additional support so the stakes are higher for these kids because... They've got a condition that naturally will they're fighting against all the time versus our kids with idiopathic toe walking who, I don't know, a bit of body weight down the track might bring them down a little bit if they've got range. Kylie, how about Botox injections? Botox injections have been quite uh, kind of popular or used to be popular among surgeons in the UK. Uh, I can tell you in the recent a uh, recent annual meeting we had within the British Society for, for Surgeons for Cerebral Policy. But majority kind of moving away. There's still indications, for, and there's a lot of neurologists that give Botox in the UK. And certainly in the UK, contracture of the calf muscle, especially on the early stages, is an indication. How about your practice in, in, in Australia? Yeah, so um, podiatrists don't do Botox in Australia. It is done in our tertiary hospitals, so it's generally done by our rehab physicians here. And similar to what's happening in the UK, we have variable practice. It is really variable, and so I think some of it, I guess from the outsider looking in, it appears to be very goal-driven, like is there something we need this young child or this older child to learn or be able to do right now that we need to make this muscle not as powerful in order for them to learn it. But it used to be done quite a bit for idiopathic toe walking here as well, but it is very, very rarely done. There was a study that was done in Sweden and we published a Cochrane um, in 2019. One of my PhD students did an amazing job of pooling all the evidence and it basically showed that Botox plus serial casting versus serial casting alone pretty much had the same effect. So why would we use a chemical when we can do it with some plaster. So again, health wastage, as you both would know, is huge. Let's be cautious with our kids, but 
yeah, I think it's different with neuro conditions and that's probably not my strength. So from the outsider looking in, it really is variable practice. Well, I think your opinion reflects more or less the general consensus worldwide when it comes to Botox and conditions such as calf muscle contractures. The, the other thing that I wanted to ask, and I, we've discussed with Gavin before in, in previous webinars we, uh, we did, operations after idiopathic toe walk, big calf muscle contraction, that, that don't have good success, and um, not necessarily a habit to bring the heel up, but just a recurrence of the actual contracture. And, and we could not explain this. So what is your opinion? What is your experience on, on this? I think this comes back to um, probably a little bit of the earlier conversation that idiopathic toe walking, I, 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 we still haven't really honed what causes it for some kids. And it might be that there is a gene that is causing it for some kids because we do see it, we do see good family histories for some of them. We sometimes also joke, we don't joke about it, but we, when we, we're sitting and kind of talking about, does this child have a bit more tone? But they wouldn't reach the threshold for CP. And so we probably need to treat them with a neuro paradigm. Whereas this kid probably sits closer to the spectrum. We can treat it with more, uh, the toe walking with more of an orthopedic paradigm, meaning we probably will um, do better. Often my biggest thing when I'm sitting with families and talking about what's, what does success look like for you, because success may not be we get rid of toe walking. Success might be they compete in the running race at school, some come with pain and we haven't explored pain much with particularly idiopathic toe walkers. I had a review recently where the editor told me they'd never seen a child with toe walking in pain and I wondered if they haven't seen many children with toe walking. Um, pain is an option. Um, being teased by their friends. If there is some social implications, I'll probably treat those kids far harder than other kids that don't care that they toe walk and they've got a good group of friends that don't really care either. So sometimes they do really well with surgery. So on that subject of the interface between podiatrists and surgeons, so for you, Kylie, what proportion of your caseload do you reckon you would send to a surgeon and which cases do you think would do well with that? Um, I... <laughs> I see a lot of kids who have disabilities and probably about 70% of my kids toe walk. Um, it's kind of happened that way. And I would probably have a child a month that I would send for a surgical opinion. Some will need surgery. One of my favourite quotes from a colleague is, your orthotics are a Band-Aid right now. It's like putting a Band-Aid on an amputation. It's like, yes, I know, but the family's not ready for surgery. The time isn't ready. We're using carbon fibre plates to just keep them as down as we can. But can you talk through the surgery with them? Because they need to plan their life because they've got a complicated life. To me, when a child can't get the ground, like if they can't put their heels on the ground, private practice isn't the place for these kids. I can't serial cast them in private practice because I don't have anyone to support me, whereas we did in the hospitals and community services. So for me, I'd probably, yeah, one a month or if it's not 
an orthopaedic surgeon colleague, it would be a neurology or paediatrician colleague. That is probably a little bit more frequently. We know that CP is the number one childhood disability in the world and early toe walking can be one of the first features that a parent realises that something's going on. So for me, that's probably the more common referral to a, a paediatrician or a, or a neurologist and then they'll go through the path and that way they're kind of out of mind by then. Is the age of the child important for you? Because I don't know what Michaelis' feeling is. I mean, I, I get anxious about doing any sort of calf surgery on a young child because I'm worried it's going to come back. If the diagnosis is idiopathic toe walking, I'm much happier about a 12-year-old than I am an 8-year-old. Would you concur with that, both of you? Yeah, absolutely. And I know, um, particularly out in private land, if I've got an older child with that level of Aquinas, it's not going away. I'm not the right person at that stage. It's really about counselling, about getting them into either the public hospital or the private system. Australia has a two-tiered approach that we can either go into the public system or or see a a surgeon privately. So, and at seven-year-old, it kind of does happen. Seven, eight, nine, and then my other group are these 11 and 12-year-olds. And they're like, when you're thinking about puberty, rapid growth in puberty, if you've got a little bit of an Aquinas in an 11-year-old boy in particular, we're about to hit rapid growth. I would like as much treated as possible with their health team because we're going to hit this massive time of growth that things are just going to get worse if you're already sitting in quite high Aquinas at that stage. I mean, from my point of view, I mean, this becomes a bit surgical now, what I'm going to say, but to start with, I try to buy a bit more time we can do with seal casting, maybe Botox injections, if indicated, you know, with my neurology colleagues, as I said, I I don't do that. And then um, I try to be very conservative when it comes to the actual operation. So I start, if I can, with calf recessions. So only the gastrocnemius tendon, kind of a minimal invasive. So I can, um, and I always tell them it might come back like three, four years later, if you do it on a seven-year-old, it might go back there again when they're 10 or 11. If that doesn't work and you've got the tendon Achilles, I always, again, keep uh, uh, like a keyhole surgery. So always minimal invasive. And we shouldn't forget that it's not without its complications. If you, some people do it open and open Z lengthening can be disastrous, especially on bilateral cerebral palsy, uh, where they can get uh, crouch gait. It's an operation that used to be done very frequent in the past by orthopedic surgeons. I think we just, we just try to teach also our junior doctors, you know, you just have to be very careful with these things. It's not as easy, you know, you need, and you need to have the multidisciplinary approach. You know, speak to your podiatrist, speak to your physiotherapist, speak to whoever you're working with, however your, your setup is, or whoever you refer to that, and make a decision together with the family about your, your patient. I was thinking about this this morning, that the importance of the team working here. For you as podiatrists, you need to know that you can contact somebody who can address a fixed Aquinas contracture in an appropriate child. And for us, in toe walking and in many other conditions, the indication for our surgery is failure of non-operative treatment. But we don't know that much about non-operative treatment and we're not that good at delivering it. It's not our forte. So that's where the collaboration works so well because that is very much in, well, Non-operative treatment is, is very big in podiatry. Operative treatment also is big in podiatry. And that, that's another question is, 
should podiatrists be the ones doing the calf surgery or even the tendon surgery? What do you think about, you know, you're shaking your, people can't see it, it's a podcast. You're shaking your head. <laughs> um, so we do have podiatric surgeons in Australia. We have a very small number of them and they primarily work in the private areas and most of the private areas that they would work in are hospitals that don't admit children. So uh, during their training, I have absolutely no doubt they have done, and I know the training is similar to the UK and it is excellent training. This to me is just how the system works. I think kids do better in a kid's hospital with the options of where possible a play therapist or an OT if they need a wheelchair or a toilet frame. <laughs> they need, uh, they, the, you don't do life alone, you don't do health alone, you especially don't do it with kids because you've got all this extra stuff. So to me, uh, I think if all you've got is adult health professionals, then sure, but where you have the option to have paediatric health professionals I think that is the ideal particularly for this one where it's a little bit I think more socially complex definitely I think we would both agree with that you know I, I have seen examples of kids treated in hospitals that are not geared up for kids it's it's not good for anyone also Gavin what Kylie says about cancelling the patient before they refer yep. if a podiatrist like Kylie you know refers one patient per month to an orthopedic surgeon uh, meeting patients and parents' expectations, educating the, the parents, you know, not getting shocked when they come to the surgeon. Because I get it sometimes, and I don't get a lot of referrals from podiatrists, usually physiotherapists, because this is how it works in the institution where I work. But they come completely, they have no idea. And it's so much better if they, uh, if they know about the surgeries, if they know about what I'm, I'm going to discuss it with, if they already have some information to go online nowadays with internet, you know, they can go, they can read about this stuff and they can ask me appropriate questions. So this is where collaboration is very, very important. And then it works again the same thing. After the operation, the patient should go back to the referrer, you know, whoever, who, who they trust, whether it is, you know, podiatrist, go back to the podiatrist and we need to tell them, have this collaboration and communication with the referrer and say, well, this is our goal and aims. And that is where we can really provide the, 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 the care, the, the health care that these, these kids deserve. Absolutely. And I'm really fortunate. Some of the colleagues that I work with, that's the way we work. I handwrite for every one of my kids who tie walk hey, you've got all these treatments, you've got surgery up this end and you've got let's just watch and wait or I call it supervised neglect. We're just going to not do anything but we're kind of going to supervise it and you're going to come and see me or I'm going to call you in 12 months and see how you're travelling. And some kids or some families and particularly through the pandemic, we taught them how to do ankle weight-bearing lunge so they could do it at home. Parents actually got pretty good at monitoring in some conditions, self-monitoring where we needed to. And I think that's a whole piece of research that I think we can work on down the track around helping parents help themselves for rather benign type conditions. But yeah, when we kind of go along and it's kind of like, well, you're up this end. I can't do much for you. I would really like you to see a surgeon and they will talk to you about surgery because that's what they do. That's going to be their job. And 
when you come out, you might need an AFO or you might need an SMO and you'll go to an orthotist for that and you're going to need some strength work. Or, you know, a shoe and a plate might be okay and I can do that for you and you can come back and see me and I can work with your physio with some strength work or we can do some of it here. So it is really about setting the parent up to know what kind of pathway. I think it's really exciting when we all know what each other is kind of going to do but also I, I always tell a lot of my families that you know some things don't go as planned and if that's the case you give me a call and I'll call them and we'll work it out and health is complicated as long as we keep all talking we'll be able to nut out what goes wrong. That is a perfect way to draw things to a close i think i'm just looking at the time we've barely scratched the surface with toe walking there is so much to talk about and it's a fascinating topic i think however here's the good news this podcast is really in anticipation of a webinar that is going out on the 6th of march so quite soon now it's going to be on all things toe walking it runs for an hour it's entirely free so everybody who's listening to the podcast you can sign up for that Kylie will be there. Michaelis will be there. There'll be cases. There'll be polls. There'll be questions. Uh, it's going to be great. So we look forward to having your company on that webinar. Thanks very much to you all for listening to this podcast. My thanks to Kylie and to Michaelis. Thanks so much for your input as always. I'm going to sign off now and wish everybody good night. And thanks very much for joining us. And maybe you'll join us on the next podcast in this series. Bye.